and realizing that like I love myself more than a program. And I remember feeling suffocated in the fact that like, here I am, I have the passion, I have the skills to do this, I want to do this, over my dead body is this getting in my way. All Things Con Amor is the pursuit of holistic health, wellness, happiness, love, the things that really set our soul on fire. Enjoy the ride. We're live. Oh my God. <laughs> hello. Hello, hello. So this is my first episode ever having three people on, Celita's first episode of her first podcast was three of us but we have Karen and Celia and Steph so hi this is our sweet little intro I don't know hi. Um, hey. <laughs> Celia how much of it do you want me to run versus you we can take turns um, questions the way we're trying to do this is you'll take one part and then that'll be for your podcast and then it'll go on to my podcast so you have to listen to both then you should follow both and you should follow all of us because we're cool oh my god time left nine minutes oh no <laughs> look at Celia with the plug from the get-go okay so this this first half we're gonna be talking academia stem um we're all latinas in stem so Karen if you could just give us a little bit like about yourself like I didn't even realize that you already had your master's give us a little bit of background how you got into stem what you loved about it what you wish you could change yeah, so um, my name is Karen Parada. Uh, I'm a Bay Area native in California. I'm the eldest of three. I have two younger brothers, Alejandro and Roberto. Um, I was raised by a single mom, and she always like really pushed me and my brothers to, you know, pursue an education and just do whatever it is that we wanted to do. I definitely didn't know that I was going to go into STEM. It had never really crossed my mind, probably until like high school, when I had my very first Spanish-speaking uh, science teacher. Her name is Miss Sordo, but now she goes by Miss Carvalho at Santa Clara High School. And I was taking her advanced anatomy and physiology class. And it was just so cool to see somebody that I really identified with and like that like teaching capacity. And I just loved everything about the class. And it was like, super gross, all of the germs, all of the nasty stuff. And I was just super intrigued. At the time, I thought like, okay, like, I know what it's like to come from a, you know, financially unstable home. I like science. What could I possibly do, like as a career in like nursing, naturally for most people that came to mind. And um, I wasn't sure if I was actually going to end up going to college. Um, and I applied like super last minute to all of a couple of Cal State uh, universities in California. I submitted the application probably an hour before it was due. Definitely very like self-sabotage at that point, super early on. That's just to kind of- The put jaw drop that of, like, Stephanie and I did. Where I yeah. was at, thinking of like what I could possibly do. And it mainly came from a place of like knowing that we couldn't afford to do that. Um, I applied anyway. Uh, I ended up getting into- a couple of places and I ended up choosing Cal State East Bay because it was about like a 30 minute drive from home and I could live at home. I could save up to buy a car and do all of that stuff. So 
a lot of the decisions as far as like my career at that point in time, like where I was going to college was very much based off of like financial limitations. The one thing that wasn't was my interest in science and all of that stuff. And as I continued on, I knew that I really enjoyed all of my nursing classes and I finished like all of the prereqs, but I knew that there was stuff that we weren't covering that I was really interested in. So I decided to take uh, or Gen Chem 3 without taking the first two parts just to see if I could do it. Um, Man, and I, what? Yeah, I did. And somehow like the person at the registrar's office didn't catch that. And I took Gen Chem 3 without taking parts one and two. And I think I ended up getting like a B minus in the class. Oh my God. Had you taken AP chem in high no. school? No, no, no. Oh my God, Carrie, you're a legend. It was so hard. I cried so much, but I was taking a couple of other biology classes and I was like, Oh, okay. at least you cried. I was oh, going to say, okay. you're making it sound like you had no. fun. I hated no. chemistry. I do not like chemistry. No offense to all the chemists out there, but it's just not my thing. Um. And then I switched my major to biology. I floated around a bit. It was definitely really hard. I was not a straight A student. I worked like three to four jobs pretty much all throughout college. Um, shout out to Starbucks for uh, giving me caffeine throughout all of my undergrad. <laughs> uh, and then I kind of came to the end of my undergrad career and was like, I don't know what to do next. I have a 2.9 GPA. I have about six months of research experience in a lab where I really didn't get that much hands-on activities. And I was like, I don't know what to do next. I've worked so hard to just get my bachelor's that I didn't think about the next step. I knew that I really enjoyed the lab and I knew that my school had a master's program and it was not super competitive. It was like a decent program, but definitely not like UCLA or a very well-known program. And I had stalked a couple of the faculty in that department. And I found uh, Dr. Nasi Pakpour, who had a pink lab coat. And I was just like, I want to work with her. So I messaged her. I emailed her. I like stalked her publications and like the kind of research that she was doing. And I was like, hey, I don't, I know that you don't do research in this area, but here's this idea that I have if you were to take me on as a grad student and here's how it would benefit you and also give me like the expertise that I need to like move on with my career, whatever it is that that looked like. At the time, doing a PhD was very much out of the question for me. Um, she said, yes, I joined her lab. I did my master's. I had an amazing time. And partway through, I was like, okay, I'm like really doing really well. And I really enjoy it. It's hard, really, really hard, but I'm really passionate about the work that I'm doing. Um, and then I decided to apply to PhD programs and I didn't get into any PhD program when I originally applied. I got rejected from every school I applied to. And if it wasn't for Twitter, I wouldn't have ended up where I'm at now. But that's kind of just like my journey in a very like long sentence. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that you hadn't yeah. got into any the first time. I got rejected from all the schools that I applied to. It was very sad. And I had talked to faculty ahead of time and they're very, you know, they seemed interested, but I got rejected from all of them. Oh my yeah. goodness. I feel like this is so important to highlight because I didn't know any of this either. And like, guys, I've I've followed Karen for a good 
like year or two now and from her content you would think she would be like the straight a student that absolutely has had her life together from day one like I really really look up to you in the stem world and so it's so validating to hear that you went through all these trials and tribulations and you still ended up where you are now that to me makes you even more impressive than I already thought you were I definitely not a straight a student at one point in my undergrad career I was put on academic probation and oh I had out of that. Yeah. So it was, I was definitely, you know, not a linear path. And I learned a lot. And at the end of the day, you know, there's not one straight path. And as long as you, you know, work really hard to do better with what you have, I think it's okay. But I made it this far. So no, you yeah. absolutely did. And I know people are really going to resonate with that. Like one of my videos that did the best was where I was talking about how I got C's in chemistry. Like I was really, really, really bad at chemistry and I'm still in med school. I think that people write themselves off way too soon. And so I'm really glad that you are like so candid and open about how everything went down. So you did your master's and then like, what did the timeline look like? Like, were you applying to PhD programs, like, as soon as you were done with your master's? Or was it, like, while you were in the process of doing it? And so, then what did you do while you were, wait, like, did you just continue working in a lab until you got your acceptance? So I applied to master's programs about, I think it was, like, a semester three of my master's program. It's it's four semesters. So semester three in the fall is like when you apply to then like go into like the next year um at the time I was applying actually I had COVID and uh, I was bedridden it was really bad I had a lot of help as far as like being able to like because I wasn't all the way there I was very much very groggy like proofreading stuff was really hard so just Mm -hmm. kind of put it into context I looking back at it now like I probably know that it wasn't my best work, but I actually had COVID while I was applying. I think I got like COVID like three weeks before I started applying. Yeah, it was really bad. I oh, It took months to recover, so it was not fun. At this point, it was okay. I wasn't in the lab. It was all virtual, right? I couldn't go in anyway, but I, I applied during then and I had found out around like January, February that I didn't get in. And at that point, I had also found out that $3,000 worth of research materials that I was supposed to get sent off to a sequencing facility mysteriously disappeared and never left my university campus, which meant that that would delay my graduation for my master's. Because in order to graduate with the master's program that I was doing, it was a thesis master's. You had to write a thesis. And I had already written all like the whole thesis. The only thing that was missing was the data analysis and the results and discussion, right? Um, So during that time, I had to work super hard to make up for all of the samples that had been lost. And for context, I work with mice for my master's. So they're they're very hands-on and there are just a lot of rules and regulations when you work with animals. So Mm -hmm. it was very much like, as soon as I had recovered enough so that I was cleared to go back to campus. I was in the lab. I worked all summer prior to leaving for my PhD. And I actually completed my master's while beginning my PhD program. Oh, so they and ended for, up having to overlap. Yeah. yeah. And for, I realized I skipped a step, but um, after I had gotten rejected from the PhD programs that I had applied to during my spring break, 
uh, a faculty member in my department at the time saw on Twitter that a faculty member at the university that I'm at now was looking for a PhD student and they were recruiting on Twitter. I reached out to them. Uh, I got an interview the next week. We interviewed for about like an hour and a half, two hours. And I got the position like on the spot. Um, and he had suggested that I reach out to his students before like making a decision, but he essentially said it was mine. If I wanted it, chat with my students and let me know what your decision is. Um, so I found out probably at the beginning of March that I was going to be starting my PhD program in the fall. And I had to work really hard over the summer to do all of like the hands-on lab work that I knew I wouldn't be able to do because I was going to be leaving and moving states completely and like doing all of that. So I was finishing up my master's, getting ready for the move, leaving, then doing the data analysis while starting my PhD and doing all of the lab work for that at the same time. And I got my master's um, while beginning my PhD. Yeah, so that's what that timeline was like. So super non-traditional, definitely not, would not recommend. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, there are actually a lot of people that like finish their master's while they're starting their PhDs. It's just not something that a lot of people talk about because it's really hard. Yeah, holy cow, man. That's insane. Like that must have been a lot of pressure too because then you're also like, I need to make sure that my results are enough for my thesis like the entire time that you're working on them. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. That was a lot. <laughs> this isn't even like in the list of questions we got from like the polls we ran, but like, how did you pick your thesis? Like, how were you like, oh, this is what I want to write a dissertation on? Yeah. So something that I've always been very fascinated about is the uh, digestive system. Okay, um, same. I love GI. We love yeah. gut health. I love gut health. Um, my curiosity started when I was a teenager when. I had eaten like uh, un elote mm -hmm. and I had realized that my body was not digesting corn the way it should have been. And I was telling my brother and my brother was like, no way. He's like, there's no way that like you didn't digest it. And I was like, I'll take a picture the next time I <laughs> eat corn DVC. Uh, and I did. And shout out to my cousin Fernanda, but she actually, you know, kids, they grab your phone and they look through it. And she had found the picture that I took. And she showed it to my entire family and I got in trouble for taking a picture of um, what I was unable to digest. Uh, so <laughs> that's where that started. And when I saw my master's PI, her work with diabetes and malaria, both of them independently have a lot of consequences on gut, mm -hmm. gut health. But very rarely did anybody look at like a comorbidity model of like what would happen if you had both. So there was like a lot of immune stuff that tied into it. So when I saw what she was doing, I picked up on the fact that like gut health was missing. And to me, gut health is very central to all of the other health issues that she was researching. And I feel like would have completed the very nice picture that she was trying to paint in the lab research wise. So, that is so cool. I found a hole and I made a space for myself and I just pitched it to her and I was like, hey, I can do this. I don't know anything about this biological system because it's not my background, but I'm sure I can figure it out. And we did. So it was good. I love the way that you phrase that, the found a hole and made space for yourself. Yeah. That, you, that's an excellent way to think about it. There is always a gap. There's always room for somebody or something that isn't currently being done. And it's just you got to pay attention really, really well and make a really big case for why it should be built. Yeah, that's I saw the saying once that it was like, if there's not a seat for you at the table, sit on the table. 
Yeah. And I was like, damn, <laughs> I'm gonna remember that <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I love that. Um, and it's funny because as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the fact that um one of the first guests I had on this podcast, Dr. Bashara, she actually found the link between why kids didn't get COVID as badly as adults. Because remember when it all first came out and it was like kids yeah. for whatever reason were like really immune to it. She found a link between a specific strain of gut bacteria that kids have higher levels of than adults do. And so she published that and we like had a whole episode on it. It's really interesting. It's like really earlier on in the show. If you um want to scroll through all things for that mode, but that's super neat that you were able to like make that connection. And then did you continue working on GI gut stuff? Um, gut stuff. That was a great way to phrase it. <laughs> but did you did you continue like through that path to your PhD or did you end up like wanting to do your PhD in something super separate like how see because I'm going into this very blind so I'm really gonna inform the audience because I like don't even know like what the process is when you apply to a PhD do you just have to do whatever work the PI that takes you on is doing um I think most of the time that's typically what happens but not always at least maybe like the initial part of the research is because it might be funded through a very specific grant that requires Mm -hmm. very specific things in order to get the money. For me personally, I did want to stay in gut. I had no intentions of going into the plant soil microbe world. I was very much a like public health, microbiology, infectious diseases person. Okay, Uh, But when the opportunity had popped up, Um, The grant that my PI had that he was recruiting for uh, was working with a um, very virulent strain of Burkholderia that has a lot of like public health microbiology related issues Mm -hmm. in the soil that later comes back to infect humans. And I saw that I was like, okay, I have the cellular molecular stuff down. I have like the public health microbiology stuff down. The one thing I don't have is the environmental stuff. So I saw a gap and I was like, if I could get all three, I could be what I like to say a triple threat in STEM and (laughs) expertise in all three areas and be able to do like a much bigger public health type uh, project or have like a much bigger like public health related career Mm -hmm. in all of those different areas. Uh, So when... I met with him, you know, he let me know that like the first part of my work would have to be this and then that it would be my responsibility to come up with a project, which I later um, had defined to be kind of like an urbanization project on like, how does all of this urbanization in um, conjunction with microbiology and public related issues mean for humans and also the environment, specifically fungi and bacteria, which are arguably the two most hardworking organisms on the planet. Uh, There definitely wasn't anything for me besides that first step, um, which is like a bunch of like collection and growing and Mm -hmm. isolating sequencing. Uh, But after that, it was all me. And I was able to pick something that had to do with everything else that I was interested in, but still had to stay within what he wanted to do. Because at the end of the day, your PI kind of decides what realm you're in but I was able to make a case to stay I wasn't able to do gut just because um to do gut there you have to have a very specific lab and we just didn't have it so I did have to compromise but I knew that after my PhD I could potentially go back to that because that's what I actually wanted to do right and that was your end game and 
is ph like getting your phd always seven years or like what how many years was your track supposed to be yeah um when i originally applied and interviewed the number that was given to me was five five and a half Mm -hmm. Uh, but as the program went on, I very quickly realized that it was going to be more to six or seven, just okay. because of the support that I had available in my program and in my lab. Um, but on average, I think it's about like seven years, but that's more so just because of how slow things tend to move in the lab, mm -hmm. um, whether things work or don't work or publication. I know in my in my lab specifically, our PI requires their PhD students to publish three times in order for them to graduate. And oh, wow. three times. Three times. So you oh have my to have God. two, you have to have two papers published and a third one accepted and ready to go in enough shape that he could finish it up while you're gone, but essentially three. Um and For anyone those who, listening that like don't understand research, especially biology, like it's so hard it's to publish so, it, one paper. One let alone yeah. three, especially in seven yeah. years, especially as a PhD student, when you're not completely in control of everything going on, when you're not in yeah. control of your funding either. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. Looking back now, how did you feel hearing that? Like, were you like, no, that's that's crazy. Like, it feels impossible. Or were you like, OK, I could do it. Like, how did you feel when you first heard that? Well, when I heard it in my interview, it was very much, oh, I encourage my PhD students to publish as much as they can. And I was like, great, that's great when you're looking for jobs like after your PhD. So for me, um, the word encourage definitely did not mean require. As I continued in my program, having been working in a lab for a little while, doing work and kind of seeing how things have moved, um, when it was clarified that it was very much required and not just encouraged, I definitely was like, oh, um, given the funding and the support available, I don't think this is very reasonable <laughs> for sure. So yeah, it's very hard. It's doable. People do it. But yeah. um, I think everyone's case is a little bit different depending on what kind of research they're doing, what funding they have available and um, what kind of support they have as far as like mentoring goes. Okay. Yeah. So how much you prioritize work-life balance? Like I know some people that get a ton of papers out, but they're in the lab 24 seven. They don't do things on the weekends. Yeah. So it's, it's also a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. For, you know, some people love it and they adore it and they think it's great, but you know, it's not for everyone to be in the lab yeah. you know, all hours of the day. Yeah. And there are people that enjoy it. Like that's their thing. So for them being in the lab 24 seven, like that makes them happy. I'm definitely more of like a modern scientist in the sense that I enjoy work-life balance the time that I spend outside of the lab I refresh and I'm able to think about um, other biological systems because I definitely walk around thinking about science a lot and mm -hmm. the more fresh air that I get the more fresh ideas that I get and the more I have time to like read papers and just stuff that I like to do on my own that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do if I was in the lab all the time and also I have a personal life so that definitely is hard but I would say that managing work-life balance as a PhD student especially as one who feels like they have a lot to prove because of their academic background mm -hmm. was definitely very hard and I did not do that and I did not know how to say no because I wanted to remind my PI that he didn't like make a mistake when he had selected me to do that and mm -hmm. I you know i definitely seek academic validation. So I wanted to be the good little grad student that 
said yes and did everything in a better than expected timely manner so yeah and I feel like that definitely plays into like Latina culture in general like we're always expected to like do things to the very best of our abilities and like prove our worth like I feel like when I show up in the medical field like I almost feel like I have to go further and stay longer and ask if I can help more often to prove that I'm even worthy of being in the room yeah do you feel like you also so you also struggled with like imposter syndrome I think I think like I knew that I was capable. Mm-hmm. I was more so concerned with does anybody else think I'm capable? Because oh, like the amount of yeah. confidence that I have in myself is a little scary sometimes. It's almost <laughs> as if I don't have anything to lose, which is probably like very scary to like meet that person. I'm definitely that person. I keep it to myself, but I was definitely more concerned with do other people think that I belong here? And I definitely have a problem with like caring about what other people think about me for sure mm-hmm. which is something I think most people wouldn't expect of me but you know if you give me the side eye I'm gonna be like sweating in my mind I'm like what did I do do I have something on my face like did I say something like do I smell weird like what's going on um so it's definitely I have self-confidence that doesn't outweigh what I think about what other people think of me Okay. I feel like I read it described once as like, um, it's really hard being a girl who is like super self-confident, but not very, that what was, I don't know if it was like who has faith in her self-efficacy. I can't remember exactly how they worded it, but it was like, I love myself, but like, I don't know if anyone else is going to love me type of thing. I <laughs> dead ass put this in a poem today. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I, I I totally agree with you where it's like, I know I can show up and do the work, but I definitely question whether anyone else is like going to look at me and know that I did well in all of my classes and like I'm worthy of like being here. Like people look at me so surprised when I have the right answer to the question and no one else does. And I'm like, why are you so surprised? It's something I like talk about pretty often because I really want to normalize like being able to have a work-life balance and like being a normal social human being and also being intellectually capable. So do you have any advice specifically on like how you handled that imposter syndrome or did you just like keep showing up? Because as like people pleasing tendencies can definitely take over your life. Yeah, I would say I definitely haven't been beaten down for the first couple of months of my PhD program after being in a really uplifting and supportive environment in my master's. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely really took a toll on me and I think my one way of kind of like blocking everything out was this sounds so cheesy, but music. Um, no, there's a yeah. one where like you see that like I got like these Bose headphones. Um, quite literally, I got it to block everything else out. And I just like focused on sometimes I wasn't even listening to anything. I just had the noise cancellation on just because I needed to be grounded with myself and I. And that was a really big way for me to not let some of like those outside um, factors kind of influence what was going on in my head. Definitely felt very at peace when I was on my own. And because I like had so much like love and self-confidence in myself, when I got to spend uh, and enjoy like the silence of my own company, what everybody else was doing didn't really mean anything to me. Um, So really just trying to find a way to feel grounded. And as a former band geek, music was 
the one way I could do that. And I still do to this day. I, I need my silence and I need my music. I have very specific playlists that I listen to. I live by them. And that's just, that's how I do it. I that's love awesome. that. Yeah. yeah. Aww. Thank you for that advice. Honestly, I feel like I also needed that. But I also think later on we should come back to this because I think this would be an excellent way of like becoming a good partner in the future for someone. Because once you feel comfortable being yourself and being by yourself, I think that makes all the difference when you're with someone else. Yeah. So I I do want to come back to that at some point later on. Yeah. I mean, really lightly, we can touch on it right now because I think it takes a lot of self-love to like pick yourself up when you're in STEM and just like in any rigorous field at all. I mean, I started my podcast from a place of like wanting to document my journey with self-love and wanting to interview people that love what they do. It's literally where the name of my podcast comes from. So do you think that your version of like self-love has changed as you've gone through your PhD or like how has it affected your relationship with yourself? Towards the beginning of my PhD, stopped doing some of the things that I really enjoy doing, like Mm -hmm. going on walks, going on runs, going to the gym, um, hanging out with friends, right? I moved to the middle of the Pacific Ocean where I knew nobody and nothing. Uh, So at the beginning, my self-love towards myself was very much non-existent I did go through a period of time where I didn't go outside like going outside was like very stressful for whatever reason and I after recently going to therapy for about like a year uh, I realized that there was just like a moving was like a really traumatic experience in addition to some other things that I had gone to gone through in my previous um, years in life mm-hmm. uh, and like self-love with myself like did not exist I was very easy to easily irritable frustrated I didn't want to do anything talk to anybody um I put like a brave face forward and I didn't talk about it at all and I don't think anyone around me like really noticed that I was going through that um and as I progressed through my PhD program I remember going home for winter break and I remember like being in my old room and like being in my old bathroom and like looking in the mirror and like not recognizing myself. And that was like a really big wake up call. So I went back um, and I like remember like sitting on the plane back home or back to uh, my school to start the spring semester. And I remember telling myself that like, it's probably not going to get any better than what it was, but that doesn't matter because I'm the person in control and I will like over my dead body, find a way to figure out how to make the situation better and allow myself to be a much happier person. So Mm -hmm. it started off with like saying no to like extra tasks in the lab. Like I don't get paid enough to be a lab manager and do lab manager tasks. I'm also not a lab manager, so I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. Or like taking on less responsibilities, leaving the lab right at five, not going in before 8 a.m. and just doing things that I wanted to do. I started exercising again. I started FaceTiming people. I started going outside um, more. So that was really hard at first, but it was good. But it definitely really affected my self-love. And as soon as I started doing the things that like I cared about and that I like to do outside of like school, that's when I think like my self-love like came back. Because I think um, as in America, we like 
live to work when it, in reality it should be we need to work to live and yeah. I very forcefully started like setting those boundaries for myself and that helped a lot well I'm so sorry you went through all of that but I'm also so proud of you for deciding to take it into your own hands come home to yourself like is it really the way you worded it so thank you for sharing that people were really intrigued as to how you handle like all the work and responsibilities and how you create a work-life balance and I was also really shocked to hear that you had like been in the lab at two in the morning before like I know it's really really common in medicine to have to be working 12 hour 24 hour shifts but I didn't realize that was so across the board in STEM and academia so could you touch on that and like how it affected you yeah so for the first couple of months of my PhD the focus was like planning the experiment going out and getting environmental samples retrieving them processing them doing all of that stuff and getting it sequenced and anyone who's like familiar with like environmental or even like animal studies know that like you're not on your own timeline you're on something else's timeline and it's like super time sensitive and I spent a lot of time in the lab like 7 a.m to 7 p.m for what was probably about like three to four months Oh my God. Um, it was like five to six days a week. Uh, there were a couple times where I was in the lab on like Sundays as well. That specific day where I talk about being in the lab and pulling an all night, my first all nighter ever. I of your life. Five and I went to bed at five and I went to class three hours later uh, was the day that I had to hike to the top of this mountain ridge. It was about like a 10 mile hike. It took all day. I had to wake up, hike the mountain with about 10 pounds worth of research materials on my back, do all of that, come back down or go, go get the samples that I had previously packed, come back down, go to the lab, put it in the fridge for no more than like three hours, go home, eat, take a shower and take like a quick nap, which I couldn't even take a nap because I was so stressed. And then go back to the lab and process all of the samples that I had. And it was 10 bags times three times 12. Do the math. It's a lot of samples. That's the night that I like stayed up all night. It was awful. I like cried at the lab bench. And there was at one point where I needed to sterilize um, a piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. And I almost blowtorched my hand off because I mistook the piece of equipment for my hand with a latex glove. Cause I thought like, that's how tired I was. And I remember just like crying and crying again. I put on music. I literally grabbed um, a speaker that like my lab mate had kept in the lab. I took his lab speaker. I plugged it into the little room I was in and I just blasted it to the point where I couldn't hear anything. And I just like worked as hard as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and that definitely happens not to that extreme, but there were definitely a lot of like late nights in the lab. And after I realized that that was awful and I didn't want to live that life, the way I did it was I just made like very reasonable lists that I could check off, like wake up, do this, do that. And just like, just get through the day and get through that list and Mm -hmm. just block off times and anything that wasn't important enough to make it on that list. I didn't even worry about. And that's how I operated for a really long time. 
I wouldn't say it's the healthiest way to do it, but it definitely worked. I think there was probably room for improvement on that like list oriented task manager, but making lists for the things that mattered the most, that was the way how I went about doing that. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad your hand is okay. Yeah. That would have, the latex would have stuck to my hand. So that's good. Yeah. Sally and I are like sitting here in disbelief. But all of, you know, all of, I will say all of the work that I did came out really good. (laughs) Worth it. Not worth it. But I can say that it came out really, really well. So I'm, I'm proud. There's like little to no contamination. All of the sequences came back great. So that's awesome. Not, not worth it, but you know, something not worth the near yeah. death experience. Yeah, not worth it. But at least I can say that it went well. My God. Yeah. I was just gonna make a comment because we were talking about like academic validation and how you always kind of felt that need to want to succeed, especially academically and sort of people pleasing tendencies. And I think you've probably noticed this as well is when you have that academic validation mentality when you have that overachieving mentality every year gets worse because you're like okay I've already succeeded at this like I'm thinking back to everything I did in high school and it was already too much you know but each year you get older you start adding more things to your plate because you're like well I've already succeeded to this level I need to succeed to the next level and to the next level and to the next level until it's it's literally impossible like anybody would look at you and be like you're doing way too much it's literally impossible but you don't want to be like of course, you're going to be like, no, it's not impossible because I'm me, because I could do it. If anybody yeah. could do it, I could do it. And yeah. so I think the list idea is excellent for people that are like that because there comes a point when, you know, you really sit down with yourself and you're like, I could do it, but I shouldn't have to, yep. but I don't need to. Yeah. yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. Like I'm going to, I could do it, but I, I don't want to anymore. Like yeah. I don't, I don't need to prove to myself because so much of that academic validation, we think we seek it from other people, but we're really seeking it from ourselves mm-hmm. of being like, I studied this amount. If I don't get an A, it's because I didn't study hard enough. It yeah. has, we don't put it on, it's like the internal locus of focus. Like we don't put it on a teacher unless it's like really bad. Right. Unless you're like, no, I can't blame myself. Like it was too bad, mm-hmm. but it's, it's always kind of, back to ourselves of like oh I'm not good enough and it's all these weird standards that we put in all these rules and everybody has them and they're all slightly different for everybody but like you pulled an all-nighter because you wanted to make sure everything went well but some other person might have been like no like I'm not gonna do that so it's it's crazy how our brains work and as you get older and also it depends who you're with like it's a lot about support that you were saying like if you have friends that would sit you down and be like hey it's almost like a little like intervention, like you need to really stop. You need to take care of yourself. You need to drink water. And like you were saying that you had that one moment where you looked in the mirror, and you didn't recognize yourself. You were not acting like yourself. You felt like a different person. It really sucks to get to that point because it's almost like screaming for help. Like you're mm-hmm. like any, like I could see how different I am. Why can nobody else see it? Why is nobody else sitting me down and being like, this isn't you. Like, what are you doing? And how can we help? And it also, I think that's why it ties back to the immense sense of self-love that you've built and cultivated because when nobody else is showing it to you, you're like, I only have myself mm-hmm. and I need to do this for myself and I need to be there for myself because nobody else can see it. I can see it. And it, it's, you know, it, it, it's a it's a tough place to be because you almost feel angry at the people in your life. Like, why aren't you taking care of me? Why don't you care enough about me to see this? And then, it, you know, it's also a great sense of peace to be like, but I don't need you to take care of me because I can take care of myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Selita, you just read my mind. You like pulled the (laughs) words out of my brain as I was thinking about them. Because for me, like that sensation where it's like you're looking in the mirror, you don't recognize yourself. That would happen to me. Like I would study until like 3, 3.30 in the morning, wake up at 8, study for another hour before the exam, go and take the exam, nap and start studying for the next exam. Because there was my first year of medical school, we had like three exams a week for like eight months straight. So it was like, I couldn't even take the day of the exam off most of the time because I had to catch up on material for the next exam. And it, it feels like you're screaming into the void and like, you're literally just like standing there, like mouth gaping open and no one can hear or see you. Like you might be surrounded by people, but like no one is noticing at all that you're falling apart, but it is so validating to know that like you can pick yourself back up. And I, I really think it also gets to the point where other people can care and they can text you and call you. But like, I stop answering calls when I'm really overwhelmed. Like my friends know that. And so they also know that like me just seeing that I have a missed call from them shows that like they're thinking of me, even if I can't answer their call, even if I can't call them back for two or three weeks. Like I just, I feel loved in that at least they're attempting. But yeah, it's it's really, really difficult when so much of like you feeling like you're good enough is from an external locus of control where it's like if you read the question on the exam a specific way, you might answer it incorrectly, even if you know the actual material. That's, I think, what really gets me at the end of the day. But I honestly just wanted to say that I'm also really proud of you for like showing up and doing the work and like being a Latina in STEM and like knowing that like we are showing up in spaces where there's not a lot of us like that we didn't grow up seeing women that look like us in our fields that was a really big part of like or why anywhere I... for the most part like yeah. so much society like we we were we grew up insecure because we were made to feel insecure because of the way society was built and like now we're we're trending and now people you know it's amazing wow. but it, yeah. it's like it, it it blows my mind that so much has changed in the last decade. Yeah. And it's it's weird to see both sides of it, of like when being Latina was something that was being made fun of, when having curly hair was hated, when, you know, having hairy arms and all these things. And now it's like people do want to look like us. Like Bad Bunny said, like, ahora todos quieren ser Latinos. And it's like, what the heck? Oh, we can't even talk about that man right now. <laughs> we don't have to go into it. We don't have to go into it. But I, I really hope that people listening to this get a lot of validation out of like knowing that the three of us are Latinas in STEM that have a work-life balance and that we are passionate about creative projects on the side and we're still succeeding and doing well. Um, yeah, because it is unique. Like, I think we should also talk about that. And I think, Karen, it would be awesome if you could talk about that, of how you balance social media and mm-hmm. your job, because it's. People think, you know, it's easy to put a video, but it takes so much work, so much effort and so much mental turmoil to be like, if I post this video, if it goes viral, if I get hate comments, like it's a whole added layer that people don't think about. And, you know, you really only think about it as a creator. And I also want to say people listening to this, like they probably they might think of you as their idol, their role model. And I just want you to know that we think of you the same way. Like anybody, (laughs) I'm like always fangirl when I talk to anybody that I know on social media because you guys are truly amazing. And I I just want you to know, Karen, like you're you're someone worth having as a role model and you're worth like you're so inspirational yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) i just want you to know that i think oh thank you and i think we all are honestly i love you guys so much i love like seeing you guys on my feed and everything and just like gives me that like ah 
Oh, I there's, wish there's we, few people that I like their video without watching it. Like as soon as I see it, I like it because sometimes, you know, you're in a rush, whatever. And you are one of them. I just want you to know that like whatever oh. you post, I'll like it. Like sometimes I don't get to watch the full thing, but I'm like, no, like, like, <laughs> you know, what? I want to give you a one up compliment from that. Not to one up you, Celia, but like I have no, the attention span. I have the attention span of a goldfish. It is a miracle that I've gotten as far as I have because I like. 30 so seconds later I'm like my brain is my brain is switching to something else but I watch all of your videos beginning to end and you have long videos sometimes but you keep me captivated the whole time because like your right. b-roll is so good I feel like I'm like hanging out with you as I'm watching your videos and I yeah. don't watch most people's most people gets like get like 30 seconds of my time Celia's poems get all of my time and Karen's day in my life little lot all of my time Aww. yeah and I also just want people to know that like Karen is exactly in person how she is on her videos like I've hung out with her we've gotten sushi we've talked and it's like people are like oh like what if she's fake ah, no like you're you're one of the people that are the most genuine on social media and that inspires me to be exactly who I am because I love you and I think you're amazing definitely more shy in person if like we're hanging out for the first time no I don't think you were shy I'm more scared of you than you are of me so that's so funny because I feel like I would be intimidated by you. I feel like you have like such strong presence where it's like you know who you are. And so I feel like I would I would be a little scared of you. But I remember the day you guys hung out and I had such bad FOMO. I was like, why don't I live in California so I can spend the day with them too? And Celia texting me at the end of the day. She was like, bro, Karen is so cool. She was so much fun to hang out with. Like I specifically remember the day you guys hung out even though I wasn't there. Yeah, I'm I'm normal. I, you know, I just you know, I, I like eating hot Cheetos, binging shows, not saying anything sometimes, or like <laughs> waking up a mess, or you know. You just, said I'm exactly like other girls, as we I'm, all are. Honestly, I love being music. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm chill. Sometimes I space out. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I get the giggles out of nowhere. Like I think of something funny. I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah. Normal. My one weird life hack when Sally was like, I love being basic. When I go to Target, I always pick the thing that's the most sold out. Because I'm like, if a lot of people are buying it, it must be good. So <laughs> What? <laughs> like, if I'm indecisive and there's, like, different options of something. Like, if there's, like, four different hummuses and I, like, don't know How do you know the it's the for? most sold out? Wouldn't it be gone because if there's the, the most least, sold out? Yeah, there's the least amount of it left. So I pick that one. <laughs> I'm not, like, judging, you. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you. I'm just letting that seep it. Honestly, that's a good way of thinking. Okay, so, but, like, on the on the same lines of, like, feeling like your friends want to be there for you or, like, maybe they don't even realize you're going through it, have there been periods of time when you felt like you just really did not have a support system, you felt stuck? How did you navigate that? Like, what was the outcome? Yeah. Um, I definitely started... I feel like I've felt stuck the entire time of my PhD program. I just didn't want to admit it. And I found every reason under the sun to like blame myself for why I was mm. feeling stuck or like why things weren't going the way I thought they would go or like what I thought was like the correct way to go. I didn't realize it until probably May of last year that I was like in just like stuck in an environment that probably wasn't the best for me. Um, and I didn't really realize why people kept saying things like your program or your mentor in grad school will make or break your experience. 
because in my mind, although I have had like not good mentors, my mind, like I came from a place where I had the most uplifting and supportive experience. So I didn't really understand what the not polar opposite of that was, but what that would look like if I didn't have that. So I was very naive in that sense. And I definitely, you know, believe that programs and mentors had your best interests at heart. And that's not always necessarily true, although there are those people that do. And I'm very fortunate enough to say that I've had that. But I realized probably around like May that I was stuck and I was trying to figure out what I could do to make the most out of it. And at the time, like I had my social media, like really started taking off and I kept thinking, okay, like maybe my lab and the program isn't what I wanted it to be or what I thought it would be. But I have this other stuff that I get to do on my own on the side that I think like make up for it. The months kind of came along or went on and I realized that I was more stuck than before because I had had a conversation in regards to funding for my dissertation. Um, And mind you, at this time, I was just beginning year two of my PhD program. And I knew going into the program that the first two years I would be funded through very specific grants. I don't I don't remember if it was an NIH grant or not. Um, but it was a very specific grants. And then after that, the words that were used during my interview process were that we would figure it out. In September of year two of my PhD program, I like had a conversation with my mentor about how asking me if I had found funding for the remainder of my dissertation. I was very surprised because in no way did I think it was my responsibility as the student to find and secure funding when programs and mentors take on the responsibility of accepting a student. Like in my mind, that's that was the way that it worked. Um, and I felt really stuck because I had worked so hard to get to this point. And here is this, again, financial barrier that is putting me in this really uncomfortable position of feeling quite literally unsupported financially. And, you know, to be fully transparent, as a graduate student in the state of Hawaii, I was making $24,912 a year before taxes. That did not include health insurance. None of that. Like, I, I think health insurance was like $130 a month or so something that's like that. not livable is it like living in Hawaii no. is expensive yes 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 very much so yeah yeah uh and you know that conversation had come up and I remember feeling like suffocated in the fact that like here I am I have the passion I have the skills to do this I want to do this like no like over my dead body is this getting in my way and I remember working to like find funding. And by December, I like had this dream of like arguing with myself of like, no, like you're not going to let anybody get in your way, like over your dead body. And I remember in my dream, looking down at the ground and seeing that like, it was my dead body on the ground. And I remember like waking up and just, I don't know, feeling really stuck. Yeah, And it was really frustrating because I had 
done everything that I possibly could, broke through every single wall, anything that would get in my way. And here I am where I wanted to be, where I cried to be. And it just like, it wasn't worth it anymore. Mm -hmm. And I had made the decision um, in December of year two of my PhD program um, that let me just finish off the year. Um, Now that I've like come to the realization that like this might not be worth it anymore, let's see how I operate like for the next six months, like knowing, finally coming to the realization that I'm not in the right place. I'm not surrounded by the support system that I need, Mm -hmm. both financially, mentorship, all everything. And that it just like might not be worth it. Um, I went home for winter break and I had a really good time. I felt just like a breath of fresh air, just being around people that I loved. And I remember coming back and being on campus in my first class for the first day. And I remember like going to the bathroom and crying and telling myself, I cannot fake another six months. Like there's no, I have nothing left to give. This Mm -hmm. program, this place has taken everything that I possibly could have. Like I looked in the mirror. I was like, I've done everything that I can. This isn't the place. And it's not a reflection of like my intellectual or like academic abilities. This just isn't place. And I made the decision to leave. And it was a really hard decision. I was like, I'm not going to be a PhD student anymore. Not here anyway. Like fully left the program. Fully left the program. And I began the process. I was a lot of crying. I started selling my stuff um just trying to get ready for the move I began talking to members of my committee informing them I began the paperwork of like leaving um almost getting charged by the university like four thousand dollars to leave because the semester had already started which ended up working out um I had a conversation with my mentor who very it ended amicably I believe I think they knew that like it also wasn't a good fit and I left and I haven't been a PhD student since August or sorry January 15th and I've just been applying to jobs since then and I actually got a job so I'm very thankful for my master's in this case and then I didn't not finish that but I think this whole process was very, I feel very privileged to have had this experience and I learned a lot. And I think it took a really long time for me to muster up the courage to leave a place where I felt stuck and realizing that like, I love myself more than a program that didn't care about me at all. Yeah. And quite literally exploited every part of me to be there and I let them do that and that I can only blame myself for but I know better now and um I'm used to be taking a break from the lab Uh, I I don't think I can touch a pipette for a little bit it's just a little bit I'm still processing what happened and I'm still going to be in STEM I'm going to be in clinical research so that's really exciting it's a different side of science Uh, and I do hope to maybe muster up the confidence to apply to PhD programs again because I know that I'm really passionate about the kind of work that I want to do and I know Mm -hmm. that 
a doctorate degree can get me there. I don't know if it's 100% necessary. Maybe there's another way, but I know that I'm capable of doing the work. I just need to find a program and a mentor that's actually willing to support me and more than just the being there in name only. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, like it, it takes too. it takes a lot to do that. And, you know, you stood up for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's amazing. And I think so many people wouldn't do that and they would just keep suffering through it. And I'm I'm so proud of you for setting the example of, you know, you give such great advice to so many people online and you're such a good role model, like we were saying. And you don't just show the good sides of STEM. Like I, I noticed when something started kind of like changing in your mind because your content started switching from like very, I love the lab, I love the lab to you were being very candid about your experience, which... I'd love that. I was like, this is what people need to know because it's so often social media in general, whatever your niche is, whatever you're doing, people just put the best sides of it and Mm -hmm. it it creates this false sense of how it should be. And then if you're on the other side of it, where say somebody else is a PhD student, they're hating their experience. They're going through something very similar to what you went through. And they see you just keep putting about like, everything's amazing. I love everything. Love my job they're going to feel like a piece of shit because they're like, oh, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not good enough? And so I I love that the way you said it was, I loved myself more than anything else that I was experiencing. And I love myself enough to leave because yeah. that, that's such a powerful thing to, to be able to do and to be able to not just have the feeling, but to be able to put it into words like you did. I think that's like, I'm, I'm so proud of you for making that decision. I am too. And I I love that you worded it as I mustered up the courage too, because what you did is extremely courageous. And it's so difficult when we dedicate years and so much time of our lives to something. I also think it was really wise of you to give yourself that six month buffer, you know, because there, there were points of my medical school career where I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep living like this, but you end up stuck in this sunk cost fallacy where it's like, I've put so much time, energy, money, effort into this. I've told the whole world that I'm doing this. Like I can't just up and go now. And so I think that what you're doing and the fact that you're doing it with your platform even is the definition of courage. And I think that it's needed. Like Celia was saying, like, I think you're setting the example and you're showing that like, you can still pursue what you're passionate about. You're still working with your master's degree and in a, like in research, like you're still doing what brings you joy in STEM and it just looks different. And that to me is like the essence of what I want people to get out of this podcast. Cause I think so many people spend every single day of their lives, like hating their job, hating what they do for most of their time. And life doesn't have to be like that. So Congrats, my love. This is a celebration. Yeah. Really happy with my decision. Obviously, I'm going through a little bit of an identity crisis, right? Like, who am I without a coat in the lab? But, you know, I was somebody before that, and I'm definitely still going to be somebody after that. But I'm just happy that I'd never been in that lab ever. I'm so happy for you. Like, clearly, it was the right decision, and it came at the right time. And I, I think we can transition here into what life looked like as you were making that decision. And so if you would like to continue, I mean, not if you would like to, I know you need to know how this all went down. So you're going to head over to <laughs> Celia's podcast, Diary of a Romantica. It's going to be like linked in the caption. So then from yeah. here, we're going to continue into part two.